All right. Well, this morning we're going to try and finish up Luke 17, 1 through 4. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're actually going to be looking at uh, a little bit of verse 3 and verse 4. Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I did not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and began to seize him, began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling. And went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw that what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came to reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should, be, should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. This text that I just read, the parable of the unforgiving um, slave, happened shortly after our text in Luke 17. You can tell. Because in our text, Jesus says you need to forgive somebody seven times a day. And this was obviously a shocker to Peter. It was a shocker to all of them. Because the rabbis taught you only needed to forgive somebody three times your whole life. Jesus then, I mean, think about that. Um, (laughs) Jesus comes on the scene and says you need to forgive somebody seven times a day. And obviously this is kind of gnawing on Peter's conscience. I mean, I wonder if he's using hyperbole. I wonder if he's, I wonder if he's, you know, I wonder if he's being literal seven whole times. And so Peter then comes up to Jesus and said, did we only have to forgive seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. And see what happened was, is Jesus and And our text in Luke is saying that you need to forgive up to seven times a day. And he could have meant seven, but seven is often used as um, a a word of uh, a number of completion, just however many times, like in Proverbs uh, 24, 16, where it says the righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Well, it doesn't mean he only falls seven times. He keeps on falling his whole life, right? And then by the grace of God, we stand back up. And so Jesus was trying to let his disciples know they need to keep on forgiving. Peter's blown away that he needs to forgive seven whole times a day. And so he asked Jesus and Jesus says, no, 490. So he finally gets it. In other words, Jesus is saying we need to forgive an unlimited number 
of times. We've been looking at Luke 1 through 4. We've seen that um, stumbling blocks are going to come. It's inevitable. A stumbling block is somebody who sins against you, either directly or indirectly, um, and they're going to come. Just be ready for it. And if you think, if you ever think of being a stumbling block yourself, all you got to do is picture swimming with a millstone around your neck. And just think how great a thing that would be, a better thing than leading somebody else into sin. That's what Jesus says. He paints that pretty graphic picture so that we will not be tempted at all to tempt other people, either by our bad example or directly um, into sin. Jesus also says we need to be forthright. When we see a fellow believer in sin, we need to go to them, rebuke them. And, uh, and when he repents, we need to forgive him. And this is where we kind of got bogged down a little bit on this last point, this whole forgiving thing, because forgiveness is a huge sub subject. A lot of times you just, you know, when I've talked to people about forgiveness, sometimes they think, oh yeah, you forgive. I just, just, you know, let it go. Well, that's easy for you to say as long as somebody doesn't do some huge harm to you. When somebody does some huge thing to you, a lot of times it's very difficult to forgive them. You keep thinking about it. You keep trying to giving it over to the Lord and it's just very burdensome. It's a, it's difficult. And so how do we get to the place where we can actually forgive somebody when they hurt us so deeply? Well, we've learned this. First thing is to just consider what a great sinner you are. And how many times you have sinned against God, who is infinitely holy. How many moments of your life you did not live with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength for the glory of God? And there's a lot of them. Secondly, consider the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who, though he never did any sin, though he was perfect, yet we sinned against him so many times. And yet he still died on the cross so that we could go free. And third, in order to forgive others, we must acquire forgiveness ourselves. You know, if you try and forgive people, you're just going to have a hard time doing it if you don't have the grace of God helping you out. If you don't have the Holy Spirit helping you out. If you don't have other believers helping you out, you're just going to have a hard time forgiving other people because it's hard. It's really hard. And finally, if you re refuse to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will spend an eternity in hell and God will not forgive you. You will pay an eternity suffering, trying to pay back a debt you can never pay. And so that's where we've left off. Now I want you to look in your Bibles and look at Luke 17, verse 3. And follow along. I'm just going to read verses 3 and 4. Jesus said, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. Now, this morning, I'm going to do what I tell all of my students in seminary not to do. I'm going to give you so many points and so much information that uh, you're probably not going to be able to keep it all straight in your head. Uh, I'm going to do this because I'm going to give you a little cheat sheet at the end. Um, I'm actually put on the board, on the screen behind us, um, the whole process. We're going to do a quick review of all the process. So if you can't suck all this up, uh, it's going to be on the screen. And if you can't suck it up in the moments I, I go through that, it'll be posted on the website. So you'll, you'll get it. You can get it. I just want you to listen because forgiveness is complex. And there are so many different variables that if we don't understand what to do, then we can actually do sin while we're trying to do obedience to the Lord. 
So let's just talk a little bit about more, some more foundational issues. We've looked at a few. Let's talk about a few more foundational issues related to forgiveness. Obviously, our text does say in verse 3, um, be on your guard if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. This is a strong command. When he says forgive him, it's the strongest command in the Greek language. I command you to forgive. Not only that, if you look at verse 4, it says, and if he sins against you seven times a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Notice the condition in the text here is in verse 3. In verse 3, it says, if he repents here, if he returns to you seven times, forgive him. So setting the condition aside, we're going to deal with that in a moment. Jesus says, you have to forgive. And when you combine the, the strong command with the future tense in verse 4, you basically have, I command you to forgive and into the future keep on forgiving. That's what it means. Okay? So that's what our text says. Now, let's just talk about what forgiveness is not before we are reminded of what forgiveness is because a lot of bad definitions of forgiveness are floating around the church. This would be point A. Point 1, sub point A. And then uh, under that subpoint A, we have subpoint one. <laughs> Forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting. Now, this may surprise you because you may have learned, and I've heard it here at Calvary, and I've talked to a lot of people about it. No, not really. You know, we always think, well, you need to forgive and forget, right? Well, have you ever tried erasing your memory? It is difficult, isn't it? It's very difficult. But where does this definition come from and why isn't it a very good definition? Well, it comes from the Bible, from texts like Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-four, where the Lord says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That sounds like he doesn't remember anymore, doesn't it? Or a text like Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, where the Lord says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That sounds like God doesn't remember our sins. And there's a handful of texts that actually say that. So how could I say that forgiveness isn't forgetting when God says when he forgives, he forgets? This is why. Because the authors of Scripture are using, here's a big word, this is a word you might want to try writing down and, and use it on somebody to see if you can make their eyes go sideways. God is using what is called an anthropomorphism. Isn't that good? Yeah, we've got an anthropomorphism here again. An anthropomorphism is a phrase used to describe God in terms that men can relate to, like the eyes of the Lord run to and fro. God is a spirit. He doesn't have eyeballs and his eyeballs don't have legs that run around. Okay. But we understand what eyes are. We understand what legs are. And so we understand that that is an anthropomorphism. I wanted to cover you as a mother hen covers her chicks under his wing. Well, God doesn't have a wing with feathers. He's not a chicken. Okay. But we understand chicken. That's would be an anthropomorphism, something men can relate to. So here, um, when he says, you know, I forget, um, God isn't really saying he forgets. Now you say, well, why is that? Why is that? Well, I mean, we forget things, right? Sure we do. And the older we get, the more we forget. Um, you know, have you ever walked out in the parking lot uh, of some big place and you're thinking, where is my car? 
and you're hoping nobody from church is watching you scan the parking lot like you're lost. Because you are. And then you press your remote and nothing happens. Oh, I must be a long ways off. And so then you make like a surreptitious zigzag pattern through the parking lot trying to find that car. Actually, have your car find you because you've forgotten. Well, we forget. And so here in the text, it describes God as forgetting so we can relate to kind of what it is to not bring it up. We've forgotten. But of course, God is all knowing, isn't he? And God has to know everything. Otherwise, he's not all knowing. And if he isn't all knowing, then he isn't God. So by definition, by God's by God's nature, he cannot forget anything. Now, it's true that after we forgive somebody who sins against us, we may forget, but God can never forget. He does, though, choose not to bring it up again. He does choose not to retaliate, not to execute justice or wrath upon us. And so in that way, um, it is as if he has forgotten. And so that's why it describes that. So forgiveness doesn't mean God forgets. Um, and uh, we may forget, and it would be I would really like to be able to forget some things um, on purpose. Usually I forget all the things I want to remember, remember all the things I don't. Secondly, point two under point A under point one, forgiveness doesn't mean there are no consequences for sin. This is another um, false idea, which usually follows from the wrong definition of forgiveness as forget, forgive and forget. If we forget the sin, how could we require any consequences if we don't bring it up again? Yet sin, here it is, always carries with it consequences. This is true when we sin against God, and it's true when we sin against each other. It's true in eternity and it's true in time. In this life. Let's just talk about the eternal consequences of our sins for a while. Now, will a Christian, if they sin in this life, end up going to hell? No, we escape hell. So we escape the eternal punishment we deserve because of our faith in Christ. But let me ask you this. Is there anything we might lose by sinning in this life? Can you think of anything? Maybe rewards. Rewards. That's it. That's it. We will lose rewards. Remember in the parable of the talent, there's a lot of parables like this, but in the parable of the talent would be one such example where depending on the faithfulness of the men here on earth determines how much they receive in the kingdom of God. Their faithfulness in this life determines the capacity they have in the life to come to give God glory. It doesn't mean they lose their salvation. It means they lose their rewards. I mean, think about it. Think about that as you live your life right now, you are either doing things which are going to magnify your capacity to give God glory in the future or diminish it. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 11 through 15 says this, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. 
And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as yet through fire. So, you know, there are some things we do in this life which are compared to the gold, the silver, the precious stones. They run through the fire and they're fine, but the wood, hay, and the straw don't make it. And so... The deeds that we do that are according to the word of God in the power of the spirit for the glory of God, those are our gold, silver, precious stones. The things we do in the flesh, not in the spirit, not according to the word of God, not for the glory of God, those are the wood, hay, straw. And those things are, so to speak, burn up. That is, yes, they are forgiven in Christ, but they don't contribute to giving God glory in the kingdom. They don't magnify your reward and your opportunity to bless God in the kingdom. And so how we live um, in this life affects eternity. Not only that, it affects our life now. I mean, just think of this. It's pretty obvious. I think um, every believer knows this. When If you fall into sin, you feel estranged from God, right? You just kind of are, are a little, you know, you, you just like, I don't want to read my Bible. <laughs> it would be convicting. I don't want to pray. I'd have to confess to God. And so when you are in sin and you don't deal with it, you are estranged from God. It's not that God has left you. It's that you have what? Left God. He hasn't turned his back on you. You've turned your back on him. And so you just need to confess your sin so that relationship can be restored. You, we all know that when we, uh, as Christians sin, we, we feel guilt and rightly so. We feel shame and rightly so. Uh, we have heaviness of heart. And if it, we go on in this way, we can be like David in Psalm 32. You know, my body wasted away as with the fever heat of summer. We could just feel the, the consequences. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 11, right? Where those people were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And he said, some of you were sick and some are even asleep. I, God has killed some of you. For going on in sin. So sin has consequences not only in eternity, but in this life. You remember David? When David is confronted by Samuel, the, or Nathan the prophet, in Second Samuel um, chapter 12, what happens is, is David has committed murder. He's committed adultery. He's deceived. So Nathan comes to him and does this little parable and just socks him in the face with a rebuke. And then you remember what happens? Let me just remind you. Second Samuel 12 verses 13 and 14. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. In other words, David, you're forgiven and you're not going to die. But then what does he say? However, God has forgiven you, but here are the consequences that follow after forgiveness. Because of this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. And what happened? The child was born. And what happened? The child died as a consequence of his sin. Did God forgive David? Yes. Was there consequences? Yes. Forgiveness does not mean there are no consequences of sin. You know, if some leader in the church is, you know, falls into, you know, major whatever sin, um, all of a sudden you say, well, that's not good. He's no longer above reproach. Well, do we have to forgive him? Yeah, we got to forgive him. Is he, can he be a leader anymore? No, consequences remain. If it's, you know, if he kills somebody, it, can he be your pastor? No, he's in prison. 
you know. Consequences remain. So sin always has consequences. Remember that. Third, forgiveness doesn't mean turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to sin in the church. You see this in 1 Corinthians 5. Remember the the man was living in immorality, actually incest with his mother-in-law. And the Corinthians thought, well, we are loving, we are tolerant, we, we, we are, you know, we're doing the right thing. And so what's happening here is Paul shows up and goes, what? You guys are, you guys are worse than Gentiles. And he rebukes them strongly. He says, you guys are being arrogant. That's the word he used. You guys are being arrogant. You guys are defiling the church. You guys aren't loving anybody. Don't give me this toleration of sin as a loving thing to do. No, forgiveness never means we ignore unrepentant sin in the church. And what I mean by unrepentant sin is sin that's ongoing, that someone doesn't confess to God. They just keep doing it. And we all sin all the time. And hopefully we're all confessing our sin. But when somebody goes down the course of unrepentant sin, then we are responsible for God to Go to that person, rebuke them. So love does cover a multitude of sins, but it never tolerates unrepentant sin in the church. Okay, B. The biblical definition of forgiveness. We've talked about this before. I just want to state it again. It means to pardon, to excuse. It even uses of, it's the, the root word is used to send away. It's like in divorce, to send away somebody. You know, get that woman out of my house. Get that sin out of my mind. That's the whole idea. Get it away. Send it away. We talked about the scapegoat in the Old Testament is a good picture because that scapegoat was sent away, never to be seen or heard from again. Get it out of my face. That's the whole idea of forgiveness. When God forgives us, he 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 says, I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to be angry. I'm not going to ra- be wrathful. And that's the same thing we're going to be. We're not going to retaliate and be wrathful and bitter towards you. You... You forgive them. You forgive them. Of course, God is only able to forgive us because of what Christ does, right? Christ is the reason God can forgive us. Even in the Old Testament, that was true. All those sacrifices, all those, you know, animal killings and all the faith that they had in God. The reason they were forgiven by God in the Old Testament was because that forgiveness anticipated, looked forward to the sacrifice of Christ. It laid hold of Christ by faith. They looked for that woman's seed who had crushed the serpent's head. That, that person who would rise up from the tribe of Judah. That, that, you know, that one special child who would, who was born to rule the nations. They were looking ahead to that child, their redeemer. And by placing their faith in Christ to come, they received forgiveness of sins in anticipation. We, of course, are backwards, right? We're on this side of the cross, so we look back. We believe in what Jesus has done. They believed in what Jesus would do. But either way, Jesus is the foundation of all our forgiveness between us and God. And when God forgives, he doesn't set aside his justice. Never think of God just saying, well, you know what, I'm just, but in this case, I'm going to set that aside and just forgive you. No, justice is always satisfied with God and it is satisfied on Christ. Christ and hanging on that cross bore our sins in his body on the cross. He suffered the death that we needed to die. And 
became our ultimate sin bearer, our substitute, the Lamb of God. And so when we place our faith in Him, He then takes our sin upon Him and He bears our sin in His body on the cross so that we get to go free. And so justice is completely satisfied when we place our faith in Christ. It's not just ignored. Okay, so that's forgiveness. C. Our forgiveness of others is not to be conditional. Our forgiveness of others is not to be conditional. Now you might say, well, wait a second, Jack. We just saw in verse 3. If he repents. And then we saw in verse 4. If he returns to you seven times a day. Now isn't that if there a conditional statement? Yes. So how can you say that there's no condition? That's why I'm here and you're there. I love these things. I love these things. Some people will teach you this. They'll say, you know what? If somebody doesn't come groveling up to you, you know, crawling on broken glass and saying they're sorry, you don't have to forgive them. You know, a lot of times people, they justify their bitterness and their anger and their unkindness towards people because, well, that person hasn't come and asked for my forgiveness, so I don't have to forgive them. Oh, really? And usually they feel they're completely right and that other person is completely wrong. But what we have here in this text, and and I'm not going to give you a Greek lesson here, but um, in the Greek there are three different classes of conditional statements. There's a first, second, and third class conditional statements. And here we have the classic third class conditional statement, you know, on with uh, the subjunctive. So there you go. And what it means is this. In general, a third-class conditional statement means if something in the future turns out to be true, then something else will happen. We could paraphrase our text this way. If in the future someone happens to sin against you, certainly forgive them. Okay? So that's what that condition is all about. But you say, well, Jack, that's still a condition. That's still a condition. They they still have to repent, right? Follow me now. Notice the text does not say what to do if the person does not repent. Notice Jesus doesn't say, and if they don't repent, don't forgive them. The text is not addressing what to do if another believer doesn't repent. Why? Because believers always repent. Like Martin Luther said, you know, in one of his 95 theses, one of the first ones on the mark, a whole believer's life is to be characterized by repentance. So when Jesus is talking about if your brother, a fellow believer, sins against you, he's assuming they're going to repent because believers repent. So he's not even addressing the impossible situation of an unrepentant, repentant one. Do you see that? And so, yeah, he says, if they repent and we know he's going to repent and yeah, if somebody sins against you and they repent, he's talking about what to do when a believer sins against a believer. And yeah, they're going to come and yeah, they're going to repent. Why? Because they're believers. Jesus uses the same kind of conditional statement in the end of the parable, the unforgiving slave, which I read earlier in Matthew 18, verses 34 and 35. He says some scary things. 
Jesus says these chilling words and his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now, is Jesus saying if you forgive that forgiveness of other people will save you? No, he's saying if you don't forgive other people, it demonstrates you're not what a believer because believers are those who extend forgiveness. An unforgiving believer? Are you kidding me? It's inconceivable for reasons we've already stated and reasons we're going to see more this morning. Now, let's just follow this to a logical conclusion. We got somebody on this side of the room. They're mad at somebody on this side of the room. This side of the room has insulted them pretty strongly. Didn't like their tie or whatever. And so... The person on this side of the room is kind of offended and they would, they, they have gone to that person and they've tried to be reconciled and say, Hey, you know, that was an insult. I, you know, paid five bucks for this tie and, and, uh, I know it's 15 years old, but I like it. And they said, listen, I'm not going to apologize to you for insulting you. Get out of here. So what's going to happen? So then that person goes to, you know, Lou Stone and says, Hey, I need you to come with me. And then they come over to me and say, Jack, I need you to come with me. So Lou Stone and I go with the guy. We go over and talk and say, hey, pal, you insult him? Yeah. You going to repent of that? And if he says no, then we take it to the church. This guy's been insulting people and won't repent of it. Then the church goes after him. Then if he still doesn't repent, he is placed into the category of a unbeliever so we forgive him and let god take after him and satan give him over to satan the world and the justice of god that is the ultimate conclusion so there's no such thing as a christian remaining in the church who won't forgive because that person would end out up outside the church if the church did what it was supposed to do right there you go there you go so jesus isn't saying listen if they now if they don't repent, and read in the white spaces here. If they don't repent, you don't have to forgive them. He's saying no. If a brother sins, rebuke him. He's gonna repent. You're gonna forgive him. If you don't, you're gonna end up outside the church. Right. So that's why the scripture here isn't saying that there is a condition. Also, consider what it would be like to not forgive. What would that look like, anyways? Oh, be angry, bitter diss the person, not look at him, avoid him. All ungodly characteristics come from an unforgiving heart. Now we're going to move to this next point, which is a whole nother point to itself, but it contributes to the re- another reason, but I'm going to make it a whole separate point. D, you must forgive other people who sin against you. Listen to this. Listen to this. Jesus in Matthew six twelve says... In the disciples' prayer, the Lord's prayer, whatever you're going to call it. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Notice in Jesus' prayer, he assumes that believers, when they pray, will have made it a habit of what? Forgiving other people. It's what believers do. Right after that prayer, Jesus then says in verses 14 and 15, if you forgive others of their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your heavenly father will not forgive your transgressions. Well, you say, well, 
Does this mean salvation by forgiveness? No. It just merely demonstrates that if you are unwilling to forgive somebody, you don't know God. Because if you did know God, you would forgive them. Because that's the command. That's how we show love to the Lord. And if anybody doesn't love the Lord, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, let him be accursed. Jesus in Luke 23 verse 34 while hanging on the cross cried out father forgive them for they know what not what they do when they weren't all running around repenting were they no they were killing him Stephen in Acts 7 while he's being pelted to death with stones cries out some similar Lord do not hold this sin against them they weren't repenting they were in the very act of sinning against him Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. No conditions are mentioned. In Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 and 13, Paul says something similar. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone just as the lord forgave you so also should you but the real clincher which is always left out of these people's books who write books that we don't have to offer forgiveness sometimes that forgiveness is conditional between men they always leave out this verse and i just think ooh, there's always a telltale sign that your view doesn't hold water when you don't include all the verses that demolish it But how do you explain this one away? When Paul defines love in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, he says, Love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous, it is not brag, it is not arrogant, it does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. That is the death knell of the whole Oh, you got to do this first. Love, biblical love, by definition, is unconditional, right? So if you have to unconditionally love somebody, and that unconditional love includes not taking into account the wrong suffered from that person, how could you say you love them if you're taking into account the wrong suffered? Can't be. Can't be. To love somebody is to forgive somebody. Because love is unconditional by definition. And there's no, there's no, you know, qualification or some people say, well, you know, it says just as the Lord in Christ has forgiven you. We're going to talk about that in a second. There is a huge difference between a sinner forgiving another sinner and a perfectly holy God forgiving a sinner. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's look here also in verse 4 where he says, the sins against you personally seven times a day, you forgive him. That, that's, that's a lot. I mean, think about your best friend. You've got your best friend. You grew up together. You do stuff together. You live close together. You're just buddy old pals. And uh, one morning you're up and your dog's barking at the neighbor's cat and all of a sudden you hear this boom. <laughs> and you look out the window and your friend has just shot your dog. And you run out and go, hey, well, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm sorry. I'll get you a new dog. It was just irritating me. I lost my cool and I was just cleaning my gun, so I shot him. <laughs> and so what do you do? 
you forgive them. Then you're out there watering the front lawn and all of a sudden you listen and your friend's out there lying about you to a bunch of your friends. He's slandering you. He's saying all sorts of things that are false about you to your friends. And so you say, hey, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I just got caught up in it all. And um, I'll call them all up. I'll tell them I was wrong. And I, I said lies and I'll, I'll apologize. Will you forgive me? And then you forgive him. And then he sees your nice car in your driveway. He's kind of jealous of it. So he pours gas on it and lights it on fire. And all of a sudden, you see the flames, the fire department comes, and after they put out your car, and it's totally rude and all charred, you go, what are you doing? And, uh, you know, obviously, you're upset. <laughs> and he says, you know what? I was jealous. I had a little, like, green envy, and, and I just thought, I'm just getting rid of that car, so I don't have to look at it. I'll buy you a new car. Will you please forgive me? And so what do you do? Say it. You forgive him. And that's just three times. You can see why Peter said oh, seven times. Are you sure? And Jesus doesn't say, and if they're little sins, make sure you forgive them. He doesn't say that. Let's say that uh, you forgive. And uh, does that mean that, you know, the guy doesn't have to pay back the car? No, we're going to talk about this in a minute. I just want to bring this up. When you forgive somebody, you want to make restitution also. Forgiveness includes, a repentance includes a desire to include restitution. So let's just say that, um, you know, you borrowed my weed eater. And uh, you used it for a couple months and then brought it back and it was all beat up and broken and the cord was broken and it wouldn't start. And I say, hey, uh, you broke my weed eater. And you say, oh, Oh, I'm sorry. You'll just have to get it fixed. (laughs) That isn't repentance. True repentance would say, I am sorry. I will pay to have it restored to its original pristine condition and or better than that. So true repentance always includes a desire to make restitution. Now you can forgive that person. But we're going to talk about that in a minute some more. But don't think that that just because you have to forgive somebody that that gives them the, the, you know, blank check to plunder you. E, forgiveness must be understood in relationship to the parties involved. Now, it'd be fun to go into all this stuff, but you can see why this would be like a month of sermons to finish this. I'm trying to get to verse five, which is so great. Um. Let me just give you, I'm just going to throw these things out to you and just give you a quick example so you can kind of get a framework when you're dealing with, with forgiveness and why it's so complex. First, there is forgiveness between God and man. And we've pounded that into dust in previous weeks. Okay, so we're not going to deal with that. I just would give it an honorable mention that all sins that we commit are ultimately against who? God. And that's why David says in Psalm 51, 4, after he, he sins by committing murder and adultery and sins against the nation and sins against his wives. It's kind of, it's kind of weird, plural, but it's true. Um, he says, against you and you only have I 
sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. Why is that? Because when God, God commands us to love each other, right? And so if, if anytime I don't love you, I sin against you. And since God is the one who commands me to love you by not loving you, I'm sinning against God. So just keep in mind that when you talk about sinning against each other, in every case, you can put in brackets and God, because he's always sinned against in the process. It's not just between sinners, but it always involves God. Secondly, there is forgiveness between God and government. So now they have God, number one, God and men. You have forgiveness between God and governments or nations. You see this uh, in the scripture. Sometimes a nation is sinful and God might forgive them, like uh, at the preaching of Jonah, right? All the Ninevites repented, and so God kind of forgave the whole nation and didn't bring the wrath on them that they deserved. They received forgiveness. So there's kind of a, a, a national or governmental forgiveness between God and nations. Third, there is a forgiveness between government and men. You know, you might get caught doing something or break the law. You have to go to court. But because you aren't a repeat offender, the, the, the judge may not throw the book at you and give you the maximum fine. He might even forgive the fine altogether and say, you know what? You've done wrong um, because this is your first offense. I'm going to let you go free, but don't do it again. So the government can actually forgive also. And then, which is what we're concerned about, fourthly, forgiveness between men, which of course comes in two categories, forgiveness between believers and forgiveness between unbelievers. And people have, uh, or believers and unbelievers, you could also talk about between unbelievers, but we are, that's not one of our concerns. But depending on who you're dealing with, determines different rules for forgiveness. And some people, by not realizing these different categories, have made statements or tried to apply certain texts, like in the Old Testament, where Israel, which is both a religious system and a governmental system, requires things of individuals when they sin. And then they try to take that parallel and foist it back on Christians today, and you just can't do that. Okay, so that was our point number four under subpoint. F. Forgiveness is not to be confused with reconciliation. Reconciliation is actually a banking term that means to settle accounts with somebody. We need to be reconciled with people. In other words, we need to, if there's an offense that has occurred, we need to come, repent, confess, do whatever we need to, so we settle accounts and we can have a relationship again. I mean, you know, it might not be, you know, bosom buddies. You might not agree on everything, but you're reconciled. You're reconciled. Reconciliation, here it is, always takes two people. Forgiveness only takes one. I can forgive somebody and yet not be reconciled to them, but I can't be reconciled to them without forgiving them. So forgiveness is a necessary outcome result uh, or, or, or reconciliation is a necessary outcome or result of forgiveness. But just because you forgive doesn't mean you have reconciliation in every case. And we'll talk about that some more later. Also, we have reconciliation with God and that comes through who? Jesus. Yeah. Paul says in Romans five verses 10 and 11, for instance, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
And not only that, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. When we repent and we believe in Jesus, we are instantly reconciled to God, which is hallelujah. Okay, our forgiving other believers must also include reconciliation. When you're dealing with two believers, you have to be reconciled. There are some believers who say, well, you know, that person did this to me and, and um, you know, I forgive them, but I'm not talking to them anymore. I'm not looking at them. I'm not giving them the time of day. Well, that's not forgiveness. That's bitterness, anger, and resentment. Christians have to be reconciled to one another. They have to get to the place where they can maintain a God-glorifying relationship. You're not reconciled with another Christian right now. You need to be. You need to be. Now, I want you to listen to this advice from Solomon in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And listen to what his advice is. If you got to the place where you're not reconciled with another believer, he says, my son... If you have become surety for your neighbor and have given a pledge for a stranger, if you have been snared with the words of your mouth and have been caught with the words of your mouth, he's just talking about if you've done something where you've given a pledge, which you shouldn't have done, if you've, you've become surety and you shouldn't have done that, if you've said something that's not good, do this, my son, verse 3. And deliver yourself since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. The phrase come into the hand of means now you owe a debt to them because of your sin against them. You've come into their hand, their power. They have a right now to exact some sort of restitution or whatever. Then notice the advice here. Go, humble yourself, importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes or slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Believe me, you sneak up on a deer when they see you, they run. They run like a gazelle and they bounce, man. They can leap. They get out of dodge fast. When the lion's there, man, they're pull. And when that dove is flying along and he looks down and sees that the, the, the fowler's taking the hood off the falcon, he's going south, man, as fast as he can. And the whole point here is if you want reconciled with somebody, go for it. Run right now. Run. Be reconciled to them. Don't remain any longer in an unreconciled state. It's bad. It's bad. That's the whole idea. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24? He says, therefore, if you are presenting your offer, offering to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering, therefore, there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. When he says your brother has something against you, that means you've done something, and now you have a debt to him to repent. At least, maybe some restitution too. There is something you've done. He says, don't go offering anything to God. Your, your worship, your singing, your giving, your serving is unacceptable if you are not reconciled to your fellow brother or sister in Christ. You've got to do it. You're living in the flesh. You're not walking in the spirit. 
Go, be reconciled. Third, our forgiving unbelievers includes seeking to be reconciled to them if possible. Unbelievers, it's different. In Romans twelve eighteen, Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And he, he implies that sometimes people don't want to be reconciled to you. This is true with believers. A lot of times they're just bitter. They're angry. They don't know the Lord. They don't know the grace of God. They just don't really care. They just, they're, they're, not, they're not interested in forgiving you. They're not interested in being reconciled to you. They don't want to. I mean, you may forgive the unbeliever and you may try to be reconciled, but you know, they don't want to. Maybe, I know some of you are in this place, you have family members or people who are just, they hate your guts. You would love to be reconciled to them, but they don't want to talk about it. They either want to attack you or they don't want to talk about it. And so whenever you're around them, it's very difficult to have a relationship because there's all these offenses. And so what do you do? You you, you forgive them because you realize, you know what? These people don't know Christ. These people don't have the grace of God. These people don't have the Holy Spirit. They they don't know how to live like Christians because they're not Christians. So I need to have mercy on them and just forgive them. G. Forgiving people who sin against us is a separate transaction from from giving them the debt of restitution they may owe us. This is very important. I remember one time, uh, you know, living in the mountains, and it was one of those days when it was snowing. And if you don't, if you haven't grown up in the snow, then you need a little snow theology here. Um, snow when it falls. It, sometimes it's if it's really cold it's very crystalline and, and when you try and pack it it just falls apart it's a bummer you can't make snowballs out of it unless you like melt it with your warm hands and you know after two or three your hands are so cold you can't melt it anymore um so that doesn't work good other times it's like slush and if you made that it becomes like a deathly weapon you know it's like a big chunk of ice and you would never want to throw that at somebody that you know you didn't plan on killing there's an intermediate state between fine, dry powder and slushy balls. And that is this perfect stuff where you can just like reach up and just scoop some and just throw it. And it sticks together. But when it hits, it doesn't hurt them. And it just, it's so great for creaming people in the face. <laughs> and so here I was, you know, a young man having a snowball fight with some other young men. And we were grabbing up snow and throwing at each other. And they had hid behind my brother's car. And I threw it. And the snowball hit the windshield and broke the windshield. And when it hit, it made an interesting sound. It almost sounded like a rock. And it was a rock because a snowplow had kicked a rock up out of the road into where I scooped it up. So then I went to my brother and said, I'm sorry. I broke your windshield. I'll buy you a new one. Now, he has an option there. He has to forgive me because he's a believer. But he doesn't have to forgive the restitution because part of my repentance includes the restitution. But thankfully, he said, well, I've got insurance. You don't have to do that. Yes. <laughs> Praise God for insurance. It's like the only time. Um, <laughs> but it was good. But see, just because, because you forgive somebody personally doesn't mean you have to forgive them the restitution. And you can understand why that is. Otherwise, I could go to your house and rob you blind, right? And then you find out that I robbed you and you say, hey, you robbed me. I go, oh, I am so sorry. Thanks for the dough. <laughs> Thanks for the loot. That nice TV. See, then it would just give people permission to plunder you, right? So remember that forgiveness of somebody personally is a separate transaction from from giving them 
the restitution they owe you. All right. Now, you're sitting there and you're thinking, Jack, I, I tried to take notes, but all these A's and B's and points, and, and I got really bogged down. Now I'm just going to run through the forgiveness outline. And you're going to see how complex. I even left a few scary rabbit trails off of here. But this is the most of the stuff that you guys are going to deal with. And see, you're going to see it on the screen here behind us. And see if you can follow this as we go through here. Um, just understand the flow of how forgiveness is to work. Because it is complex. And sometimes even the whole elder board is thinking, I don't know. Um, you know, it, it's difficult. Here we go. When believers sin against you... And of course, God is always included and you'll see God in brackets. When believers sin against you, know that they're going to sin against you. We saw that. Be fearful of sinning against others. We know why. Uh, Think millstone. If your brother, another believer, sins against you, they can do it in one of two ways. One, they can directly sin against you. They can either tempt you or entice you to sin or by um, harming you or your property. Two, they can indirectly sin against you by tempting or enticing you to sin and being a bad example in front of you. See, just their bad example, though they aren't like saying, will you come and do this? Their bad example tempts and entices. Or they might harm those under your care. So those are some examples of how they might sin against you. In either case, rebuke a fellow believer for their sin against you. Luke 17, 3, we saw that. Now, if they repent, forgive them and be reconciled. If their sin against you involves the need to have some sort of restitution, windshield, they will pay that restitution as part of their repentance unless you also forgive the restitution, which is an option. If they do not repent, then you follow the steps of church discipline outlined in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Bring one or two with you to rebuke them. If they still do not repent, tell it to the church so the church can rebuke them. If they still do not repent, remove them from the church, treat them like an unbeliever, forgive them. And this means giving them over to Satan, to the world and the justice of God. And if restitution needs to be made, and this is where it becomes very complex... You can choose to forgive the restitution they owe you. So now that they're unbeliever, you just forgive them. But you can choose to forgive the restitution they owe you. Secondly, you can get the government law system involved in some cases. Hear me out here. Since they have proven themselves to be unbelievers by their unwillingness to repent of their sin and by their being disciplined out of the church. Except whatever restitution the government system will give you for the harm they have committed against you and be content. Now, if the person maybe goes to another church, if they profess to be right, uh, even though it may be their fault. And if in the world's eyes, they appear to be Christian and not just a name because they, they attend some church, maybe. Then you have to consider the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 7, where he says Christians can't sue each other. And so make sure that Christians, and I think he's talking about the Christians at Corinth in the church of Corinth suing each other. Um, He says, Christians can't sue each other, so don't go sue somebody in secular courts and then bring reproach upon the name of Christ in his church. Rather, be wronged. 
And this is where it gets difficult because if somebody has sinned against you and they owe you some sort of restitution, you've tried to get it and they won't give it to you, or somebody in the church has done that and they've been disciplined out of the church, so now they're officially to be treated as an unbeliever, the last step of church discipline. If they still don't repent, treat them as a Gentile and tax collector, that is an unbeliever who needs Christ. Then the question is, what are the court systems going to think? Are they going to see that person as a Christian and you as a Christian suing each other? And in that case, if you think there's a possibility of that, then you need to be wronged and you lose the restitution. Five, if there is a disagreement as to who has sinned against whom and who is at fault and who owes whom restitution, then the case is brought before the church leadership for binding arbitration. The church leadership determines who is at fault, who needs to repent, and what restitution, if any, is owed. If each person involved willingly in the fruit of the Spirit then submits to the decision of the church leaders, paying whatever restitution is required of them, if any. Okay? And they say, okay, we'll do it, and then they're reconciled. They forgive each other and say, okay, well, the elders said I'm wrong, that I owe you this, I'm going to give you that, will you forgive me, I forgive you, and then you can be buds um, after that. Whoever is at fault, according to the leadership, must, one, humbly repent and demonstrate their repentance by submitting to whatever restitution the leadership requires of them. Two, the person sinned against may choose to forgive all or part of the restitution they have coming to them. Three, each party forgives each other and they are reconciled. If one or both parties are unwilling to submit to the decision of the church leaders, Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is followed as in 3B above. And then you go through that process and get them out of the church or get them to repent and get them to do what's right. Now, then you finally have and when an unbeliever sins against you as a Christian... You must forgive them realizing that they are unbelievers, slaves of sin and Satan... And have no love for God and no really ability to live like a Christian because they're not. Now, concerning the practice of rebuking, should you, should, if, if an unbeliever sins against you, should you rebuke them? You know, you're standing in line and um, I had a guy, I was waiting for the cashier and the guy just made this snide comment like, um, you know, just scan your card. You know, and I'm thinking, well, I am the computers waiting to read it. And now, now, should I say, listen, you offended me. That was an unkind statement. That was not loving. That was impatient. (laughs) Do you see that? Okay, that's what we're talking about. So concerning the practice of rebuking the unbeliever, here are the options. One, you can decide not to rebuke them if you decide to forgive them both personally, the restitution you believe they owe you and them personally. So you, you forget the, them personally and the restitution. And then you try to be reconciled with them if they're willing. So listen, pal, I'm, I forgive you. And he's going, forgive me. <laughs> yeah. For that mean comment. Hey, hey you want to be friends? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> you choose, you can choose to rebuke him and also forgive the restitution. You believe they owe you. You can seek to be reconciled if they are willing. Or three, you must rebuke them if you are going to ask for restitution. If, you're, if you realize you've lost something or they, you have something coming because they stole something from you or whatever, if you're going to try and get something back, you have to confront them. So if you're going to go for the restitution, you have to go for the rebuke. 
So if you ask them for restitution and they refuse, you can ask them nicely and they refuse. You can choose to forgive what you believe they owe you and seek to be reconciled with them if they are willing or be um, if they refuse, you can choose to use the law system to seek the restitution you feel they owe you. Whatever decision is arrived at by the justice system after using the full extent of the law, you accept that decision and remain content. You seek to be reconciled to them if they are willing. So that's why forgiveness is complex. And now Tim's going to come up and lead us in a song um, that fits perfectly with this.